Hey, do you know what are the three worst marketing words ever? The three worst marketing words ever. Some assembly required. I mean, if, you, if you've raised kids, had grandkids, or you've bought anything yourself that had that on some label, some assembly required, you know what I'm talking about. And there's some pr- approaches to that concept of some assembly required that we will implement. One approach is you pay somebody else to do it. You've been there, you're not doing it again. Some of you are the kind of people that when you open the box, some assembly required, you pull out the instruction or the assembly guide and you follow it step by step and then the rest of your family experiences a variety of wonderful moments along the way as you follow those instructions. Some of you are the kind of folks who you see some assembly required, you see the instruction manual, but you never open it. You wing it all the way through. If you're putting together a bicycle, it doesn't matter to you if the foot pedals are now the handlebars and the handlebars are now the foot pedals. You got it functional. You just wing it. Regardless of your approach to some assembly required, you can't escape some assembly required. And that's kind of like life. Life feels a lot like some assembly required. It's challenging. It's it's full of uncertainties and unexpected events. It's oftentimes seasoned with difficulties. Some assembly required. I I like quick start guides. If I had a choice, I'm going to choose quick start guide over an assembly guide, right? I, I, I got this quick start guide here on some headphones. I really like this quick start guide. Here here it is, three steps. Turn it on, connect it, start listening. Now that, that's how I want life to be. A quick start guide, but many times life is not like that. Life is more like some assembly required. But, but there's an attempt to fool us along the way because we get things like this. Seven simple steps to setting up your printer. And, and you wonder, why is this 16 pages long? I mean, if it's seven simple steps, there's a problem here. And you begin to work through that and you immediately discover there's not seven steps in here. There's over 30. And none of them classify as simple. So many times in life, what we want is a quick start guide. But what we discover is it's not as simple as we want it to be. I tell you that because... A some assembly required life is a gift that should be cherished. So let's read about Joshua and taking the land in Joshua chapter 12 and 13 today. Now this is the first passage in Joshua we will not read in its entirety And the reason we're not going to read it in its entirety is primarily because it's not a story. 
It's a list of kings and areas that were taken in the land. And it switches back and forth to different areas of the land. I'll detail that as we walk through it. But, but it's a little hard to follow, kind of like some assembly guides. And so I'll do my best to summarize it for you. I would encourage you to read all of 12 and 13 this next week and keep in mind the things we're going to walk through. I'll do my best to give you a clear explanation. So then you read this, you will be able to see so much that is here in these lists that are far more than what meets the eye. So let's start together in Joshua chapter 12, the verses I do read. I'll read from the Christian Standard Bible. Let's read verse 1. The Israelites struck down the following kings of the land and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan to the east from the Arnon River to Mount Hermon, including all of the Arabah eastward. So what you have here is an introduction to the land and the kings that were taken on the east side of the Jordan. Now, in the beginning of Joshua, they came up to the Jordan River, having come through the land on the east side of the Jordan. So this is about the land that was conquered before they crossed the Jordan. Before they crossed the Jordan, we're going to read in the next several verses, or you can read in the next several verses, the areas that were taken. And they will be given to two and a half tribes of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now all that happens on the east side of the Jordan before they cross over. The next several verses are about those cities and those kings. Look at verse 7. Joshua and the Israelites struck down the following kings of the land beyond the Jordan to the west from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which ascends towards Seir, Joshua gave their land as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their allotments. Verse 7 sets up the next set of verses which describe the land that was taken on the west side of the Jordan. So you have the land that was taken on the east side. It was allotted to two and a half tribes. And then you have the land taken on the west side that we've already read about as we've read through Joshua. And Joshua recounts uh, many kings that were taken, many lands that were taken. There are 31 in all that are listed in this passage. Not all of them are detailed as we work through Joshua, but that's what we've read through in Joshua, what happened on the west side of the Jordan. And so you have the east side taking of the land, the west side taking of the land, and now you have these allotments described around the land. If you think about chapter 12 and all these descriptions, these descriptions can be summed up in a few key words. You'll see the word in verse 1, possession. You see the word in verse 7, inheritance. And this idea of a possession that they have taken what the Lord has given them, and it's an inheritance, a gift of grace from the Lord. So this is, this list here, is kind of like a combination of Christmas and sitting in a living room with one of your richest relatives that loved everybody in the family has died, and now the inheritance is being dished out to the family. That's, it's a combination of those things. And this is one of the greatest moments in Israel's history. So don't let the list fool you. Oftentimes when we read through lists, we just get through them to get to the rest of the story. But this list is of incredible significance because it marks the beginning of the allotment 
of the gift of God, of the land that had been promised to God's people. This is one of the greatest moments in the history of Israel. If you're thinking about Christmas and receiving a gift from someone, this particular gift is unique in the way it's described. The description of the land is given in terms that would be more like legal terminology than just common vernacular. And so if you were to ask me where I live, I would give you the address. You could plug it into maps. You could find your way to my house. But if you wanted to know more of a legal description of where I live, I would say I live in S7817, Block 5, Lot 4. You'd be like, what is that talking about? Well, that's the legal description of the land in which I own. And so what you have here in, in Joshua chapter 12 is more in line with a legal description where God possesses, he's the owner of the land, and he is giving in sort of a legal transaction as a gift this land that now belongs to Israel. They're receiving a gift, and the owner of the land, God himself, is giving that land to Israel because of his grace. It's not because they're better than every other nation or family on the face of the earth. It's because in His grace, He chose a people to give a land so that on that land they might flourish under His kindness as a way to be a light to the rest of the world that God loves the world. So He gives this amazing gift. He's promised and He's kept His promise and they receive the gift. But it's more than just receiving a gift, it's an inheritance. Imagine sitting around in a living room when one of your very rich relatives who loved everybody in the family has died and everybody's sitting there and the executor of the estate is reading out the inheritances. And with every person in the family there is a pre-written description of what the one who died thought about you it's the most amazing description of kindness and goodness and at the end of that description of what they thought about you and how amazing you are you hear the words describing an inheritance that is beyond your imagination and it's given to you and that scenario you never celebrate the death of a loved one. You're grieving over that, but it was the death of the loved one that had to occur before the inheritance is provided. Not so in this story. God owns the land and God is affirming His favor on His people and God is giving them an inheritance before a death was required. This list is far bigger than just the land. A death will occur. God will send His Son and He will die on the cross. And God is giving out an inheritance before the death was required. Because He is faithful and He is gracious and He keeps His promises. That's who he is. But there is much more about this particular gift of land. Look at verse 1 in chapter 13. 
Joshua was now old, advanced in age, and the Lord said to him, You have become old, advanced in age. You know, if you're old, you don't appreciate the redundancy here. Just say it. He says, you have become old, advanced in age, but a great deal of the land remains to be possessed. And then you have a detailing here of what land remains to be possessed. Drop down to verse 7. You see a command. Therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Remember, two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, they're getting their allotment on the east side of the Jordan. Israel crosses the Jordan, and the remaining nine and a half of the 12 tribes get their allotment on the west side of the Jordan. And so here's the command that God gives to Joshua, begin to allot the land. And then the rest of the chapter here really goes back to what's happening on the east side. We don't get to the west side allotment until chapters 15 through 19. And so we're flipping back to the east side. You see how it's a little hard to follow? We've gone east and then west. We've gone two and a half tribes, then nine and a half tribes. And here's what's happening here. God is communicating to his people, I am faithful to my promises. I am gracious and I am good. And I have delivered on what I said I would deliver. You can trust me. And then Joshua is commanded, you need to start giving out the land. It's an amazing picture of what God has accomplished. How he keeps his promises and he is faithful. Now I want to point out a couple things to you here in verse 1. The first thing you noticed, I'm certain, is that Joshua is old. He's old. Now Joshua did not wake up one day and look in the mirror and think, oh, today I became old. Joshua's been old. But God is pointing out here, Joshua, you're now old. You are advanced in years. How, Joshua, how is Joshua supposed to respond to that reality? This is a checkpoint in life that is triggering the reality for Joshua. You're now old. But here's the thing. Even though you're old, there is still land to be possessed. There's still work to do, Joshua. You, you think about life. Life is just filled with all these markers along the way that signal we are getting old. Today is Promotion Sunday. There's a lot of signals happening today in our church family as, as our kids are, are moving up into a new classroom. As some of our sixth graders are moving up into the youth area. Big day. Promotion Sunday. Whenever a kid goes from single digits to double digits, that's a big day. Nine to ten. It's a marker. When, when, a, when a kid gets uh, his or her driver's license, 16 years old, that's a marker. I'm getting older. You, you, you get your voter's registration. I can now vote. I'm getting older. 18. Big deal. When, when someone gets married, you know, that's a marker. We're getting older. When they have kids, they're getting older. And then someone like me who yesterday moved in their youngest into college, they enter into what's called empty nest. 
You wake up the morning after empty nest, it feels more like empty heart. You look in the mirror and you think, I'm getting old. I know empty heart only lasts a couple weeks and you'll be like, empty nest. I know all of you are telling me that, but don't sing songs to a heavy heart. It's just hard, right? You have those moments you realize, I'm getting older and things change. But here's what we have to remember. All the indicators in life that we're moving into new seasons and we're getting older are never indicators that God's call has been removed from our life. The Lord didn't say to Joshua, man, you're way old, Joshua, so my call is no longer on your life. No, he said to Joshua, Joshua, you are way old, and guess what? There's still work to do. And you need to live your life, every breath I give you, under the blessing of my calling. I want to tell you, there are a couple people in my life. One's name is Lennon, and one's name is Kathleen. And both of them were in their 80s. They are no longer with us. They have deceased and they're with the Lord. But those two individuals in their 80s, had some of the most profound impact on my life. You know what impacted me so deeply about those two individuals in their 80s? They were still about God's call with everything they were. It looked a little different. It wasn't the same as when they were in their 30s and 40s. But they didn't look at their age and decide this is a time to let somebody else fulfill God's call. They looked at their age and they believed it just might be that I could fulfill God's call with wisdom that nobody else younger than me could do. And there are generations below me that still need me to live out God's call on my life with every bit of passion that I can. And it profoundly changed my life. And I just want to remind you, whatever season of life you're in, you're going to pass out of that into a new season. And though your ability to fulfill God's call may be altered along the way and the way that happens and the way that's fulfilled, listen, you will never graduate from God's call on your life to take the gospel into your world. Be faithful because God is faithful. And if He's given you your life, if you have breath, His call is as real on your life as it ever has been. Tells Joshua, you're old, but there's still land to be taken. There's work to do. Did you, did you catch that implication there? Hey, the land is yours. I've given it to you. Go ahead and divide it up. Divide it up among all the nine and a half tribes. But guess what? Not all that land that I've given to you, you have yet possessed. There's works that still be done. Do you, do you hear that? Some assembly required. There's still some assembly required. 
I've given you the land. It's yours. It's not like you need to go in and try to win it. I've already given it to you, but it's not yet all possessed. There's some assembly required. And you know what? That was by God's design. This is how God intended them to experience the promised land. I've given it all to you but you have not possessed it all yet. There's work to be done. Some assembly required. And God tells His people that's the plan early on. He tells them in Exodus chapter 23, verses 29 and 30. He says to them, I will not drive them out ahead of you in a single year. Otherwise the land would become desolate and wild animals would multiply against you. I will drive them out little by little ahead of you until you have become numerous and take possession of the land. God says, I've got a plan here. And here's how I've designed your experience of taking the land. You're going to get it all as a gift, but you're not going to possess it all except for little by little. Because if I gave it all to you, it wouldn't work out well. I'm going to give it all to you little by little because I have a plan for you to grow. Change. Become my people more and more as I work this out over a period of time. Does that not sound a lot like our lives in Christ? We are co-heirs with Christ and yet in Romans chapter 8, the end of that chapter says you are co-heirs with Christ, but you've got to suffer with Christ if you want to taste glory of Christ. It's this some assembly required. Yes, I've given you eternal life. It's yours in Christ, but you have not yet possessed all of eternal life I have for you. I've got a design here, and your life is some assembly required. It's imperative that we recognize that some assembly required life is an amazing gift that must be cherished. This is God's design. It's His goodness. It's His faithfulness. When He said to the people, I'm going to give you this land, and they conquered 31 kings on the west side, those 31 kings were like a down payment. The rest of the land is as much yours as those 31 kings. But I've got a plan here for you. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, He sent His Holy Spirit to indwell you as a down payment. That one day He would pay in full on His promise to redeem. But He wants you to stay in the life of trusting Him along the way. He gives us experiences of little victories along the way so that we remember this life is designed by God to be some assembly required so that we would trust Him knowing that He will one day pay in full on victory and we will be victorious once and for all. This is an amazing blessing that should be cherished, not one that should be despised. Some assembly required is designed as a gift. I want you to listen to a couple passages. It's scattered throughout the whole New Testament. Let me just read a couple to you. The first one is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6-9. through 1 Peter 1, 6-9 through 9 says, You rejoice in this, 
Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious Joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you hear that? The difficulty of life is designed in such a way that the sum assembly required results in a refined faith that ultimately comes to the receiving of salvation in the most glorious of ways. This is a gift to be cherished. I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 9. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and punishes every son he receives. Now before I read on, I want to make a note here. This passage is talking about discipline and or punishment. Punishment is where you do something wrong and God comes in correctively in order to move you away from what you did wrong. So you would not reap the devastation of disobedience, but instead experience the blessing of obedience. Okay, that's what, that's what one description is. Now, this is a different description. This is discipline. Right, it's not punishment for what you've done wrong. This is discipline. Now, look how he describes it here. Verse 7. Endure suffering as discipline. You're doing everything right. You're following Christ. You're laying down your life. You're passionately living for the cause of Christ. And life is some assembly required. And the wheels fall off every once in a while. It's hard. It's uncertain. It's difficult. And the Lord says, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Should we not submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? God designed our lives to be some assembly required. And He takes the difficulties of life in Christ and He changes them so that they are a gift to be cherished that helps us experience the glory of His salvation. When I was a teenager, my dad brought me along to work with him. He was working as a handyman at this point in my life, and so he had odd jobs around town. And this particular job that I went with him with required some uh, work in the plumbing area, particularly in the bathroom. And uh, he had some other jobs to do around the house, and so he decided that he would allow me, a teenager, to tackle the plumbing issue in the bathroom. Now, as a father, I understand more why he did that uh, than I did then as a kid when he gave me that assignment, the problem was that the toilet was irreparably blocked and cracked. 
So it had to be removed, cleaned out, and replaced. I had never done anything like that in my life. And he set me in the bathroom. He says, it's clogged. It needs to be unclogged. Then we need to remove it. We need to replace it. Good luck. Walked out. I'm like, what have I done wrong? Because whatever I did wrong, I never want to do it again. Now, had I had the wisdom at that age as a teenager to talk to my dad intelligently about that circumstance, I might have said to him, Dad, what have I done wrong? Because I'd never want to do that again. And he would say, Son, you've done nothing wrong. This is an opportunity for you to learn. Because someday you're going to have a family, and someday you're going to have toilets in a home that you own, and you're going to need to know what to do when they have a problem. And today is not about today. Today is about the rest of your life. I have something bigger in mind for you through this moment of hardship. I can tell you, my dad did stuff like that to me all my life. Put me in a scenario that wasn't favorable and helped me walk through it and learn from it so that I benefited for the rest of my life. If my earthly dad, who would stand before you today and tell you he failed miserably, in his life if my earthly dad cares about me like that how much does our heavenly father care about us some assembly required is by design because god is faithful and gracious and he always makes good on his promises he just wants us to hang on long enough to taste how good they really are There's one more little verse in chapter 13 I want to point out to you. Verse 22. We didn't read this, but I want you to look and see what's happening here in verse 22. Along with those Israelites put to death, they also killed the diviner Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. What in the world is that about? You ever heard that which one of these is not like the other? This is Balaam. You're like, where did this come from? He's not a king. He's not an heir. He's this diviner in the middle of dealing with the Midianites. What's up with Balaam? There's two stories that you would immediately think of if you were an Israelite reading the greatest accomplishment of Israel. The first one would be of Balaam, who was recruited by the king of Moab, Balak, to curse Israel. Balak went to Balaam and said, Balaam, you have an ability to curse people. And when they're cursed, they really are cursed. So I'd like to hire you and come and curse Israel because if somebody didn't curse them, they're going to wipe us out. And so Balaam said to Balak, I will do what you're asking. However, I will not be able to do anything but say what the Lord tells me to say. Balak says, I don't care as long as it's a curse on Israel. So Balak and Balaam strike this deal and Balaam gives a blessing in the place of a curse for God's people. He does it multiple times and every time that he does it, Balak goes crazier and crazier. He's like, you're supposed to curse Israel and you're blessing them. And Balaam says, I told you, all I could do was say what the Lord God was saying for me to say. The next story is with the Midianites. Apparently the Midianites were worried about Israel too and they went to Balaam asking for his help. And this time Balaam 
advised Midian to offer Israel the opportunity to drift into idolatry by way of sexual immorality. And it worked. And Israel experienced a great downfall. And Balaam is recorded to have been killed because of his activity with Midian, advising them to lure Israel into idolatry. I don't know what happened to Balaam between the time he said, I'm only going to say what the Lord says, and the time that he says, I'll tell you how to get to God's people. But something happened along the way, and I have a sneaking suspicion that the some assembly required kind of life that Balaam was living caused him to say to the Lord, I don't want your instructions anymore. And I just want to encourage you. Your life and all of what it entails at this moment is the sum assembly required that God designed to help you find Him. And if you decide that you don't want the life God assembled, it will not turn out better than trusting Him. I so wish that the story of Balaam was reversed. That the story was that Balaam said he didn't want anything to do with God, but then he had a change of heart and he recognized that the God of the Bible is the God who can take curses and turn them into blessings. I wish that Balaam's story was, I once hated the way God structured my life, but now I've come to realize that what I thought was formerly a curse, that this God can turn into a blessing and I am trusting him for the rest of my life. But that was not Balaam's story but it can be your story some assembly required by design because God has he has the victory he's victorious there's no battle to fight Your life full of battles are being fought not to get the victory. They're being fought because you've been given the victory. God is victorious and so we battle in the sum assembly required life from victory, not for victory. So when the Word of God says to us, be courageous, be strong, don't be afraid, no matter how much assembly may be required, we can be courageous because God has already secured the victory and His promise is as good as kept. We can trust Him. He cares about you. And he's longing for you to trust him. There's two little other comments in chapter 13. Verse 14 and verse 33 indicate that the tribe of Levi doesn't get land. 
Land is a big deal. That's what this is all about, getting the land. And then you see verse 14 and verse 33 say that there's a tribe left out of getting the land. Just maybe, just maybe, the Lord has something far better in mind than land for all of us. That's next week.